Hey, I'm Gary David. And I'm Adam Gamwell. Welcome to Experience by Design, the podcast where we explore experience designs of all kinds. Now, running a professional organization ain't easy. I know this. I know this. As a person who's been involved in a professional organization for a number of years, I was past president of it and I'm vice president right now, which I guess might be a demotion. I'm not quite sure how that works. Good question. I don't know. It is a good question. I have to ask people who elected me. But the idea here is there's so much that goes into creating and delivering a quality membership experience, especially when there's really no reason why people should join in the first place, right? What value are you bringing in to them for the money they're giving you for joining? And living during a pandemic has only made that a lot more challenging as conferences go online and everyone is having stories now about their online conference experience. Member information needs change as people are wrestling with the unfolding of history, wherever it's going to go from one day to the next. Organizations are trying to find any number of ways to provide meaningful experiences and value to their membership. So on this episode, we welcome Nicholas Bott of Senji to the Experience Design Studios. Now, Senji's platform is super interesting, and it has features that help organizations create online communities and member experiences. But they do more than that, actually. By working with organizational leadership, Senji also helps organizations develop strategies to grow their membership, which is really important, right? I mean, we all need nice we to all need to grow our membership. We all need we do, right? It's nice to make a platform, but if nobody shows up, it's not, not super useful. It's like parties in my high school. That's there you go. <laughs> I gave the party, no one showed up. It was not a great feeling. I needed Senji. You should have hired Senji, man. I should have hired Senji. Yeah, now we know. Uh, so through through Senji's team of super nerds, which is a great which is a great name, um, and continually expanding offering, Nick and Senji work really closely with organizations to support their mission of making online communities possible and successful, and so, having people come to your parties. And I mean, hey, that's that's a the conference goal, is right? just a big party, and you don't want to throw a big conference party and have no one show up. That is true. That would be sad. Mm. <laughs> um, so in order to show how, how we don't have to have, we, or how we help people show up in this episode with Nick, we're going to dig into the nature of virtual communities, which is a really interesting subject in general, because we all spend a lot of time online. Um, and also really this challenge, this temptation of selling your dream at the risk of losing your vision. What does it mean to do that? Especially when you have a business and you want to kind of birth it in a certain way. And, and how do you hang on to the original idea when things change? Um, what it's like to create a team of people who are empowered to innovate. That's right. And, you know, finding purpose in the Senji product and figuring out what it is that they really wanted to do with it. So we're super excited and we cannot wait to get to it. So let's turn it on. And so I actually just hit recording. So yes, we... I'm at a virtual conference and we did have a networking session through Zoom. Uh-huh. And and let me tell you about it. <laughs> I know it's a you know, it's funny because it's it's all the dynamics that you would not want to have, and none of the dynamics that you'd hope would be there. <laughs> because what you ended up having was people who were more senior. I mean, the organization that I'm in, 
is really trying to be there for mentoring towards younger students, right? But what you end up having are all the old people, me included even, like that, that old, regaling the young folks with stories about their experiences and never really providing a chance for the young people to have a word in edgewise. And, and, and then we tried to do breakout groups, but no one could find, we, we couldn't do the breakout rooms in Zoom because the person who organized it was off doing something else and none of us could get it on our screen. And it really didn't work well, Nick. So, I mean, yeah, that was my recent networking event online that was, uh, and then I tried to open up a Google Hangout to get people to go over there and that yeah. didn't work out really well either. And then, yeah, it was- How, um, how many people were at this event? Uh, uh, I think at the time, maybe 30. Oh, that's, that's not even that many. Yeah. So mm. yeah, that's, that's kind of the thing I've been wondering about, uh, just being in the, the virtual exhibitor space, some of the stuff we're doing and how do people do professional networking when you have, let's say a thousand people or more, you know, you'd have to mm. basically break it out or have mostly lurkers. And then if somebody wanted to contribute, it would just be chaos. One of the one of the things I've seen. So there, there's a conference that I attended, a virtual conference last week as uh, as well, and it was they they hosted it through Whova, you know, which is which is another kind of online conference platform. And so what that was is that kind of following what you're what you're saying, Nick, was that they you could you could basically say we want to have a meetup. This is a podcaster conference, so we're having a a, a meetup for podcasters that are in Boston. We want to have a meetup for for folks that work in the medical industry, want to meet up for folks, you know, that are working on something else. And so there were the, the flip side was that, so the groups that met ended up being much smaller and it's kind of like you just set a time and then people would meet at that, at that moment. But then because it was also quite fragmented, you certainly couldn't attend all of them. Um, I don't know if one would even want to attend all of them, but um, so there's an interesting flip side of the spaces are more intimate, which, which is nice. Um, but, you know, you kind of have the, I don't know if this sounds like it should be like one of these psychological things. It's like the, the paradox of choice, right? There's so many you could right. go to. Yeah, I was just thinking pick? that because then you're then you're just in that little tiny silo, right? If you yeah. break it out. Uh, uh, it's, um, it's almost like the networking would have to be topic-based. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. What I learned from that story that Adam just told was that there was a podcasters conference and Adam didn't tell me about it, nor was I invited. Yeah, that's sorry. So <laughs> I mean, a, I don't know. Yeah, that was my take. I, I heard nothing else because the rage that was building inside of me. <laughs> right. Brad, Everything not, just went red. Right. Yeah. I mean, I just kind of shut down as I tried not to have an aneurysm thinking about Adam trying to hoard all the podcast riches for Hoarding himself. All the information. Yeah. <laughs> right. The highly lucrative, very rewarding field. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, exactly right. And so right now I'm, I'm sitting here, Nicholas. I'm sorry, I'm, Nick. I'm sorry you have to experience this. It's like mom and dad right. arguing. In front of the guest. <laughs> yeah. Oh, don't so, say that. You know, saying, we'll talk I, about I, this I'm later, Adam. That. I'm actually used to that because I still live with my parents in the basement. And, mm. you know, I just pretend to run a company. So never. Oh, that, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. And, you know, speaking, speaking of that company, huh? I, did they talk about how to do segues at your podcast conference, Adam? Is that's that, like, is that why, that's why you're interested in, in virtual networks, right? Because you're in a basement. Yeah. <laughs> <It's>, yeah. yeah. <laughs> And networking, how to get out of your basement. Should, I, how. should I be doing an introduction? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What do you tell us about what you do? Like yeah. crop it out and stick it in the front. Well, I yeah. think, you know, let, let me lead you into the introduction because I'm a okay. professional podcaster, even though I'm not invited <laughs> to these things. You know, I can't, you know, we came across each other as all great relationships start, not Adam and I, because that's over, but you and I, Nick, you're my new best friend, <laughs> was through LinkedIn. 
and just, you know, I think you might've reached out to me or something. We got connected and I saw this company, Senji, which was about online community. And I went, huh, I know a little something about that. I'm a sociologist who talks about online community. Right. And it really did strike me. We had a really interesting conversation. At least it was for me. I hope it was the same for you. Mm-hmm. about how your company, Senji, is trying to go about creating community in associations, which is such a hard nut to crack. Trans- yeah. Transferring membership into community, you know? It, so like, what was, what was the impetus for this, this vision of this is a problem that I want to be involved in solving? Uh, yeah, so basically just working in the consulting space with nonprofits and associations, uh, at some point, a community platform was developed, and it was never a, a primary thing that we were doing. So uh, sort of the, the primary push on it was initially just the return on investment from having developed the solution. And I know that's a really boring answer. Uh, the other piece of it, though, uh, is more about how I run the company, which is uh, you know, not having a, a planned exit, just kind of backing into more of an ownership role and and not selling out, to, you know, like a lot of my competitors to make sure that it, it still gets run with those initial values, like uh, very predictable pricing with not without overages, uh, you know, making sure that customer service is a huge focus. You know, really, I would actually uh, change the company to a nonprofit if I could retain ownership, hmm. you know, hmm. in that. So it's not focused exclusively on making money. It's, it's actually more kind of focused on serving that audience uh, in an ethical way, which I, I think is probably more of a, a unique quality than, you know, just technology. Do you have like, I mean, this is not meant to be an overly deep question and maybe it is, but um, that's, a, that's a really intriguing kind of prospect of, of how to think about what you're framing your, your work around. And so I mean, what what about in thinking about this work as ethical uh, draws you to it in terms of like, how do we serve an audience ethically? And this is not to like call out other companies that might not be doing that, but that's an interesting right. way to think about like what what do you see in that in that space? Yeah, just basically providing sort of inferior solutions at a high price point. <laughs> a lot of uh, a lot of sweeping things under the rug as far as oh yeah, this is what it's going to cost, and oh you wanted that as well. That's going to cost this extra piece, and uh, this ended up being more work than we predicted. And you're going to have to eat that risk for us, right? Mm. So it just it kind of comes from the consulting space, and just really not liking how the consulting space works. Uh, mm. particularly for sort of more of the captive audiences. Like once they standardize around a particular technology solution, it, they're kind of thrown to the wolves in right. whatever sort of partnerships exist in that space. So mm. I, I don't make a lot of friends with other vendors usually because, uh, you know, I don't want to say like we cut out like the middleman or anything like that, but definitely not a lot of focus on sort of playing games as far as uh, like referral uh, referral fees and, and uh, right. you know, commissions and that sort of thing. So really just focused on uh, basically doing a good job and being a, a, you know, a good solution for folks in that space rather than sort of trying to exploit them. Hmm. Yeah. You know, you and I have a lot in common in that, you know, I don't make a lot of friends either. I mean, with vendors or anybody else, not even Adam apparently anymore since he's <laughs> gone <laughs> gallivanting at conferences without me. So still trying to process that. I'm not going to lie. So oh, yeah, I've got some treats for you later. 
Oh, thanks. And your bike is hopefully got, that's the thing about these virtual conferences. You can't come away with the tchotchkes. With no, there's the no swag bag for you. I know. No swag bag. Yeah. I just have all the videos for it for you. So I, you know, on this point about being the unconsultant, and that's why I think, you know, if you want to use that name for yourself, you can go ahead and take that. The un, you know, Nicholas bought the unconsultant consultant. It is interesting when I was looking at, I've done some research on enterprise system implementations. And a big part of that is, you know, kind of like this monolithic system platform is going to come in and subsume your company. It's like the Borg from Star Trek, you know, resistance is futile, you will assimilate. And then once you're in it, you're stuck, you're hooked and you can't escape out of it. And it's not really about customer focus, customer experience or customer centricity. It's just about creating dependency. Yeah, I think that's largely true, particularly, um, again, I'm not going to name names, but some of the more expensive systems where you have, let's say, a million dollar migration of your data. And then for that return on investment, you know, like maybe that's a 10 year decision, right? And it just keeps, you know, the cost keeps piling. They don't tell you up front, you're going to need a couple of full-time developers to help your staff or organization actually right. use that system. So, yeah, again, it's just a lot of sort of exploitation in the space and seeing all of my competitors get, uh, you know, exiting and, and get uh, getting acquired and then uh, a loss of focus on uh, the quality of, of serving that audience. So, yeah, I just, I consider Sendy to be sort of an alternative to some of the larger companies that is, is just, it's, you know, we're not going to exit. There's no venture capital it, there, you know, there are other endeavors that we're working on with more of those aims, but Senji right. particularly is sort of isolated. It sounds familiar in that, you know, you got the few people who are developers who are supporting that technology, and then that technology becomes a legacy system, and then it's just Bob, and Bob is the only guy who knows the programming language, and that's mm-hmm. why Bob's kept around, and no one, knows, no one knows what Bob does, but you can't get rid of Bob because if the system goes down, the whole, the whole thing will fall apart. And it, you know, I think that it's an interesting model to think about in that, how do we promote the growth and development of organizations and not just service the, the consultant need or the vendor need to maintain um, a business line in perpetuity? Yeah, and that's actually a big piece of it is sort of the strategic vision and uh, talking, just really communicating with your customers and figuring out what are the best practices that are working in in this space. And they tend to be segmented. Like, this is a real estate related association. This one is in, you know, uh, CPA uh, space, like accounting, that sort of right. thing, or uh, or some other spaces. And and sort of just picking what seems to work really well. And then it's pretty much up to you as a vendor, no matter no matter what space you're in to figure out what works the best and, and helping everybody, because just like everybody else right now, and historically everybody has way too much work to do in order to do that kind of research. So we did a survey around, I think 2018. And one of the top weaknesses of associations was informed strategic decision-making. So basically the, the only folks really, invested in strategy were the CEO or no one at all, you know? Right. Um, and then other weaknesses were quantifying, basically having, having all the numbers and, and information in each department to actually quantify and make those informed decisions. So it's sort of like working with two hands behind your back, you know? Yeah. I, I, I want to defer to Adam to ask a question or chat here, but 
I'm, I'm living this right now with an association that I'm mm. on the board of. I mean, it's, it's exactly what you described. The, the association is too small to afford um, an executive director to kind of manage the vision, the strategic element. And then it's a volunteer association. Mm. So, you know, people, and plus it's an academic group that's not business related. So someone once at a meeting said, we need a dashboard. And everyone, a lot of people looked around puzzled. They're like, what's I, you know. My car has one. What? Yeah, we need some key. We need some. We need some key indicators, and they're like KPIs. I think the person said we need some KPIs, and people went, "I don't know what. What's a KPI?" Right. So then we had to back up and say, "Here's what a KPI is. Here's what a dashboard is. Here's why we need these things." Here, you know, and I wonder in your experience how many associations are at that level. They're not like the massive international big professional associations. But they're regional. They're they're more niche or boutique associations that are catering mm-hmm. to a smaller audience. Yeah, actually, it's almost the inverse of what you described because the smaller ones don't have a lot of choices, so they just get something to work, and they're not as uh, they're not as sort of married to the idea of we have to find the best solution, right? Because they don't mm-hmm. have this this large budget. So, and then with a lot of the really large, again, not going to name names. Uh, really large associations, they are are more headless in a lot of ways because each department is sort of isolated. Like just trying to sell something to them, if you touch on multiple departmental points in your solution, it's just going to kind of go in a circle where nobody wants to really be the one to make that decision as far as like purchasing or implementation. Is that, I guess I'm wondering about a flip side question with that too then, is that do you find on either side, whether it's like a very large or a smaller organization, I guess it's, it's, it's they're sort of easier. I don't know. They each have challenges of how do you get institutional buy-in, right? Because one level, mm-hmm. it's like it goes in the circle. And the other side, if it's smaller, yeah, uh, they may just not understand how to even implement these solutions. So I guess, I guess, like what, like, tell us a bit about some of the approaches you've, you've kind of, have you found either of those to be easier or harder, like the larger or smaller organizations to kind of build buy-in to? I think there's usually one or two leaders that mm. it really comes down to. You know, usually there's somebody in an executive position that is really pushing that buy-in to the board. And then as far as who's going to run this thing, who's going to make sure it gets implemented, that's usually coming down to somebody uh, who, who's more in the communication or marketing space, that sort mm. of thing. Um, preferably somebody more in the engagement space, you know, with membership, because that's the other piece of this is, a lot of associations tend to be very localized or regional. Right. And that competitive advantage is you're serving that local audience. But as everybody knows right now, you know, the idea of regions or chapters or, or that sort of thing changes. You know, there's still legislative differences between uh, states and national and that sort of thing or international. Mm-hmm. But, you know, those smaller regional differences start to dissolve when things go virtual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's there's probably been about 30 years of uh, sort of engagement and, and social and localization progress packed into you know the last six months or so. Yeah, right. Um, and, and and policies haven't quite caught up to that of what that even looks like, you know. Right. Um, I guess, I guess I'm curious too, like thinking about with, with Senji and, and some of like the different features that that um, you guys offer in terms of like adding these kinds of solutions in like whether they could, they could be like very deep or they could be of more surface level, depending on how much, how much, I guess how many or what kinds of tools associations might need. And so is there kind of a, I don't want to call it like a beginner's package, but like, it's sort of like, how do you get someone to dip their toe in the water? If they're not quite sure what it means to build an online or virtual community, um, what are some of the first steps you recommend that they think about? 
Uh, it's usually you have to simulate, you know, what are your members going to be using it for, mm. uh, which, which largely comes down to knowledge sharing. That's usually kind of a no-brainer. Uh, every association has a lot of knowledge sharing. You know, doing the math as far as experience, you know, we've had customers with uh, hundreds of thousands of, of collective hours of experience in a profession. And, you know, if you really think about it, and that kind of knowledge when, when every member has potentially decades of knowledge and sort of being able to document that or, or share it or pass it, down, uh, pass it down or, you know, mentoring and mentee type situations. There's a lot of focus on that. And our software can be as simple as a listserv where you just hit reply in an email client. So, you know, people don't even have to know the system. And that's really one mm -hmm. of the things that I like to stress. So the question of, you know, how much staff time is it going to take to run this thing? And my answer is always, hopefully as little as possible, right? Mm -hmm. Because I don't want them to have to learn our system on top of all the other stuff they have to learn, which is why integration is really important. Being able to talk really fluidly to whatever main database backend they're using in order to bring all of that into the community and hopefully not have to deal with you know, situations. Uh, occasionally, you know, some of our customers have uh, proactive moderation of discussions and that sort of thing, and, and others are more reactive. So, you know, it can, it can be down to a, a small number of hours a week, you know, if any, potentially. One of the things that I think we talked about before, I'd be curious, I mean, it's, I'm looking at your website right now, and it's, you know, about online communities. So, you know, do you see yourself as a community organizer? And, and by that term, I, th I think about community organizers who are working in physical communities who are trying to get different groups, different stakeholders to identify with a common cause through which they can work together. And so how much of your work is not just here's a technological solution, but here's how you as an organization can think about creating a stronger identity, creating greater trust. Um, you know, developing a sense of, of um, shared goals and structures and why we're all here together. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? You know, it's, 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 it's creating community in the best of situations is a tricky proposition. So, you know, to what extent when you're building this thing, are you thinking about how do we create a, not just technology to connect people to share bits of information, but to really create community? Yeah, that's uh, kind of a broad tricky question ultimately yeah, for sure. ultimately our customers are running the solution so but you know our tagline uh, or motto is be relevant every single day which right. you know our objective like for example if our customers are not successful then we are not successful so part of being a strategic partner for our customers is we don't have any kind of time contract so you don't buy our solution and then have to pay for it for two years, even if nobody uses it, you know, so that's, that's focusing on our return, but, you know, I want to make sure that our customers are succeeding with their members and that right. they're using it and they're staying relevant to their membership. So, you know, after, after our setup fee, you know, like we can't refund that if we do all that work, but beyond that, nobody is, is trapped in a contract which is right. again, just, mm. just part of that commitment to you know, ensuring their success and, and sharing that risk, uh, which probably is more in line with smaller associations, smaller or, or medium, uh, you know, but we also have some larger customers. 
So as far as, you know, there's, there's ideas like uh, community champions, you know, we don't, we don't want the association running these communities. We want a leader to be sort of appointed or, or volunteer to be responsible for making sure people are using it and sharing resources through it and building that community. So it's, it's kind of more managed at, uh, you know, every single piece of that. So if there's a chapter, for example, you know, they might have a chapter community champion that makes sure that people are using it for that purpose and, and building up the community that way. But so that, that person that is like the community organizer, really, I mean, I'm, I'm just, yeah. you know, thinking in sociological mm-hmm. terms here that you have a person who is not just in charge of knowing the functionality of the system, but also leveraging that to achieve this goal. I mean, one of the, one of the tricks that I'm in right now, one of the tricky situations I'm in, you know, being on the board of an association that people really don't have to belong to, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and the, the, how do you re, and the classic problem for a lot of associations, at least the ones I've been in, the academic ones are, how do you get people to come to, to, to stay involved in a association if they're not coming to the conference? Usually academic associations, they get membership through conferences. To present at a conference, you have to be a member. And if a person doesn't go to a conference, they're not a member. And this is why you see fluctuations in membership based on where the conference is that year. And it's always been a challenge to think about, well, how do we create community to stay, to get people involved more than just the fifth, you know, 51 weeks out of the year, not the one week there at the conference, but the other 51 weeks as well. And, and we're, we're an association of sociologists and we haven't had a good answer for that yet. I can imagine that for, <laughs> for other associates, maybe we're just like, you know, not smart at our own work. I can imagine other associations struggling with it. And, you know, how does yeah. this, how does this factor into making their lives easier in that way? Right. Yeah. And actually we do have, you, you just sort of shoot in uh, one of the other things that we do, which is uh, events and learning opportunities, you know, seminars and conferences. Right. Uh, wrapping online community around those so that you can participate in the event before it happens, while it happens, and then after it happens. Right. To continue to get those insights and feedback from your membership and your attendees. And, uh, you know, even leaving reviews and potentially bringing those into the catalog to for people to see those reviews next year and, and make a decision about buying. So, yeah, extending the value of those offerings, hopefully, you know, for at least months beyond the event, because there's all this buildup. It's super expensive. Everybody, it's just a breakneck pace while an event is happening. Everybody hands each other these business cards that end up in the trash can, you mm-hmm. know, uh, a bunch of silly stuff in a gift bag. And, and then it's just sort of a blur from that point forward, you know, and I'm not saying that those physical events or time constrained events don't have substantial value, but it's, you know, you really need a record to continue to derive value from it after it happens. Mm. And, and it, it, that's an interesting idea too, because it, it's like how obviously collecting things and capturing stuff online um, and, and, you know, storing it as, as we're just used to doing with data now makes that possible in ways that weren't possible before. Mm. Um, but I think, yeah, it's like, I, I want to, I'm thinking about that too, in terms of like both Gary's question in terms of how do you make community live on after the event, as right. well as then, then your point, um, Nick, about you know if you're wrapping a conference or in a kind of event with kind of community software, this is an interesting idea in terms of like you know what new ways you know I, I guess maybe a question to think about this is like how you know what what do you not see yet that you're really excited for that like could be built in terms of like what do we how do we I guess I'm thinking about like how do we wrap 
community or virtual building around a conference that like helps it extend beyond the actual event itself. Is that in terms of like having conversational pieces that happen or like forums that live on or, mm-hmm. um, you know, video series that move forward or stuff like, yeah, what are some of those pieces? Yeah. So that can be, you know, the e-material access, uh, having question and answers virtually. So you can be on your phone and ask a question. People can upvote from their phone. So their presenter knows what people huh. are interested in, in having answered. And then you can take notes that persist through the entire thing. Uh, and those notes, a lot of event solutions aren't really focused on sticking around the entire year. You know, they tend to be, mm-hmm. you're paying by event. And it's another difference is we don't do that. It's just based upon the membership, which is essentially, you know, usually membership correlates to revenue, not always. We definitely have some larger customers who are paying a very small price point for our solutions because they're, you know, a trade association might have very few contacts, but, you know, really large funding from their organization members. Mm. Uh, But getting back to as far as how are you basically applying that in-person experience into the community? You know, again, you can ask those questions before it's happening. Well, it's happening other than the audience response system piece where people can ask questions, do social posts to uh, a social wall. You know, it's sort of like... Mm. It's sort of like asking, well, how do you use Twitter at an event, you know, <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, right. and people definitely do, you know, they take pictures and they post it and our software does that same thing. Uh, but I do think that the community piece of it probably has a higher value, you know, before it's happening and after it's done. Uh, there is a, a conference app and and that sort of thing with resources like hotels and Kind of the thing that excites me more about the idea of in-person is uh, the pivot between virtual and in-person being really fluid. So with like self-quarantine, individual quarantine, regional, uh, and then potentially parallel events geographically, right? So Mm -hmm. let's say that our solution is, is sort of the stable point where people on the East Coast are using it and people on the West Coast are using it. And you're able to have presenters that broadcast between those two points and have everybody on the same community. You know, so even if there's a geographic distribution that can be thousands of miles, potentially everybody can have a similar experience and have a similar record of that experience. Mm. So I, I sort of see that as the future of events. Well, that, that's actually really interesting too, because it's like the, the virtualness of it, as you're pointing out, actually makes the in-personness more extended, I guess, right? That it can actually be, this idea is interesting too, of like, you know, if you're at a virtual conference, you can be on the West coast, on the East coast, you could be in, in, in a different continent mm-hmm. and still have a simultaneous experience. I mean, if, if the hours are not too crazy, right. But um, even if you're not uh, like in the, you know, watching the session at the same time as somebody else, the experience feels the same, uh, you know, kind of phenomenologically almost, right. It's like, cause you're watching, you're watching the session and you're tuned in and you can like answer questions with people, uh, in a group. And so I don't know, that is interesting too, about it. it's, it's almost like this distributed experience, I guess that um, I don't know how sociological this is Gary, but you know, it's just like that we can have the, the, the sense of being together, even though we're not together, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think one of the questions, you know, we do virtual communities are a thing. We know they exist. Usually they exist. I would say, I mean, this is from the, like my, my extensive knowledge of academic research, but they are more likely to exist when people are giving support to one another. This is why the creation of empathic communities is, is so easily done. I mean, just as a quick story, uh, the dog we got a year ago, he, he quickly got sick and developed something called Addison's disease, which means his adrenal glands don't work. 
And, you know, dogs can die from that. He almost died. So after he got the diagnosis and I paid, I think, I don't know, $3,000 or $2,000. Thank you, stimulus check. Um, that's where that, <laughs> that's where that went. And now it only cost me like one small car payment a month to keep him alive. But I, I went on onto Facebook and found a, uh, an Addison's, a dog Addison's community mm-hmm. where all of, I mean, people are like sharing pictures of their pets and their pets have died and who can oh, yeah. I give medication to, and here's information. And it was, it's just like instantaneous, you're welcomed. And you find that very quickly with, with, with empathic communities that, that the situation people are in creates a strong identity and esprit de corps and reciprocity and knowledge sharing and exchange and, and inclusion and all that stuff that is essential for communities of any type, let alone virtual communities. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. And it does touch on, uh, I went to... Uh, the mass challenge in Boston with a, a friend mm-hmm. of mine. His basically, he founded. A, we co-founded a company in Australia, but really, he founded it, and I was just sort of placed in there potentially if I if I committed to it. I ended up kind of walking away. But um, so you know, we were with this group of super nerds from Australia and myself from the states and in Boston for the mass challenge, the startup incubator. And one of the companies out there was focused very closely on the problem you're describing. Um, the use of Facebook groups for uh, talking about medical conditions, particularly rare ones, and doing language analysis to try to actually quantify things that tend to not be quantified. Like, what is what is the true pain scale? What are the true things causing pain? Uh, how do you alleviate suffering? The things that are not strongly quantified in an anecdotal way you know, normally, uh, you know, you go to the doctor and you say, I have, I have this pain and they say, describe it. Well, it's not happening right now. I'm not exactly sure how to describe it. Right. You know, you, you remove that when it's, it's just this, uh, you know, loosely coupled community where you can talk about things at any time and bounce it off of other people to help you articulate those things. And then you can take that knowledge and sort of try to treat it, treat it more in a clinical way and apply it in the real world, especially when there isn't an interest because there's not enough funding you know, people who, there's not enough people who suffer from this thing. There's only right. a thousand worldwide. So where do you get, uh, you know, that initiative for a pharmaceutical company or biotech company to address those things? And if I can add on a piece of like a little bit of a twist onto that, what you end up seeing in those kinds of situations online, just from my anecdotal experience is people talk about things that are really bad. They don't talk about things when they're not so bad or when they're fine. Someone on the on the Addison's dog group said, "You know, um, we only see pictures of people's dogs who have died. It'd be really great to see pictures of dogs that are still alive, mm. because no <laughs> no one goes online to these groups to talk about how everything's okay or the moderate symptoms they're experiencing. Right. So part part of that context then with that data starts to be how do we make inclusive spaces for all people who are part of this larger group? I mean, that's like what your what your company is looking at. So what you talked about before is." Not just catering to specific people who might um, not commandeer in a negative way, but might take up a lot of the attention because of the situation they're in, because of the standing they have, but to allow for everybody to have that space. When there's only one channel of communication for a group, that can be really hard to accomplish. Mm. Because you have like this topical reduction to a norm, right? You know, or reduction to a topical norm of this is the topic we talk about. A new person sees that's a topic we talk about. Therefore, they don't talk about anything else unless it fits that topic. You know what I mean? 
So it seems like part of your, like your company's goal is to create multiple spaces within a larger association for more voices to be present. Yeah, that's definitely true. There is usually some kind of breakdown. Usually there is a, a topic group for all of the members, which is sort of a, a free-for-all, anything goes. And then there are more specific interest groups broken down from there. And folks do use it you know, for that purpose. Although um, an interesting phenomenon I've seen is the more you break people into small groups, the more they escalate into larger groups anyway, even if it's off topic. Mm. Because if I'm trying to get an answer to a question and I already tried a thousand people, maybe I need to try 30,000 people, you mm. know, because nobody can answer it. So that's another scenario that comes up a lot, uh, even when you try to organize information. Uh, it's actually really interesting when you think about the internet from 10 or 20 years ago and the number of people who could publish things. Uh, you know, basically you had to know HTML and, uh, you know, to make something presentable. And slowly over time, social media has enabled everybody to be able to publish anything on the internet. And mm -hmm. it's sort of an echo chamber, you know, especially when everything they're suggesting is stuff that you are already familiar with in some way. It's tangential to something you already right. are engaged with. So these echo chambers and polarization of people, you know, I think that's a, a modern phenomenon we're seeing now, particularly with politics, obviously. And, uh, you know, at, the, at this point, though, the internet is just full of, you know, citations to other posts that cite other posts. And right. the information is diluted over like and LinkedIn. over. Yeah, it's, a, <laughs> it's, it's just, a, it's kind of a real problem with information. Uh, and then, of course, you have information generated by AI, but back to the medical space as far as getting real life feedback from people to be able to figure out what's actually effective. Uh, you know, that's where AI comes into to analyzing that and trying to quantify it. But if you look at the internet as a whole, you have the same sort of thing where information is, is just so diluted. And even concepts like search engine optimization, a lot of people don't use search engines anymore. You know, mm. it's just, it's, yeah, it's almost like in a way we've all become virtually localized because your network becomes your source of knowledge uh, rather than a lot of people doing, uh, let's say, more original research. And even if they do, you know, often it's going to be, well, there was a survey done 10 years ago with this demographic and what, what can we p-hack and derive from that sample, you know, mm -hmm. and then present as evidence of, of some kind of, you know, quote, research. That, that's, that's, that was really tangential, sorry. No, <laughs> that's that, that was actually about. super interesting, you know, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the subtitle of the show is a tangent. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, um, actually, I have to jump off here in a second, but I think that's a really interesting piece just to like, um, for me, I'm, I'm going to go away thinking about this now, is that just even thinking about the idea of, of if people don't use search engines as much anymore, partially because algorithms make them feel like they don't have to. It's kind of to your point, I think, because right information is localized and echoed. I mean, this makes me think of, um, I think it's called Trick Mirror by, by Gia Tolentino. There's a book on internet culture and how it's like really shaped uh, the way that a lot of people like obviously tend to have things like confirmation bias a lot stronger now. And there is a bit more of a tribalism because it's like, well, the information is familiar to me because I'm really just kind of circulating around the same stuff. And Facebook is actually feeding me things that are, that are, you know, in line with what I'm saying I like. Yeah. And that makes it really, on one level, it makes community bonding in a localized sense stronger, but right. It can lead to, lead to hostility, obviously to other ideas yeah. and blind points and lack of empathy. Yeah. 
Um, so it's, I know, it's, it's a, it's a perennial challenge. Um, I'm going to leave that there for my part, but <laughs> y'all feel free to rock and roll. <laughs> yeah, this, gonna... is, this has been um, fun. And I, I may want to pick your brain about this later too. This is super cool. Okay. And now that, now that Adam's gone, we can talk about him and get back to how <laughs> yeah. he left me out of the, um, the conference for the podcasters. You're actually, you're, you're giving me an idea. This would be, this is just a side note. It would be really funny for a podcast if it's an interview show where we're talking with someone, but then the hosts are arguing about something like this throughout the entire episode. You know, I, I, I don't yeah. know. I like this idea. That was called marriage. I thought that was called marriage, but okay, we can do a <laughs> show on the podcast. Yeah. Right. Marriage, the podcast. There we go. Cool. Awesome. Nick, Nick, thanks. This has been a lot of fun. Yep. Um, Gary, right. I'm eternally sorry. That's we'll, okay. Turn. I, I, I got this. <laughs> you got it. Uh, so, I mean, I'm sorry about the conference, but. Oh, okay. No worries. Yeah, whatever. There you go. <laughs> All right. We'll see you guys. It's been fun. Yeah. Cheers. Thanks. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, Nick, I'm looking at your website right now, and it's kind of cool where you're listing all the people who are working there. Mm-hmm. And underneath their names, like underneath your name, you have writing code and shaking hands. Other people have different like little phrases underneath their names. Were those phrases that they chose themselves to put on onto the website? And what was the decision behind adding um, those things? Yeah, I mean, that really depends on how creative they are. Okay. So, you know, I always, uh, I definitely don't run a company in a strict way. So it's it's sort of like, what is your five-year goal? And what's the title you want that is conducive to that goal? Okay. You know, so I really, you know, it's part of, part of running a company is getting what you need. But the other part of it is orienting things towards the, the strengths and weaknesses of the people who... Uh, you're bringing onto the team. Right. So it's, you know, and that's every, everything. I, I really want people to want to be doing work that is interesting to them, you know? Right. So uh, I think that's a big part of it, but yeah, I always ask people, you know, what, what title do you want? What do you want? Uh, how do you want to be represented? That sort of thing. And so sometimes somebody will come back with something really boring and I might take a little bit of Liberty there. Sure. And I, you know, it seems, it's, that seems aligned. I mean, you know, we're talking about employee experience here and which is something that I do, you know, work on. And it seems to me that this is part of the larger culture you're trying to preserve, which is also related to this, you know, purpose vision that you have for, for, for Senji, which is not just to create a technology that creates dependency or that you can sell off really quick, but that it, it's, it's fulfilling a particular kind of, goal that's higher than just that motivation. Right. And that's, you know, it seems, it even seems to be reflected in the website in terms of what you just described, giving people the, the freedom to build their own community in the workplace. Yeah, I think so. And I think this is actually a trend with millennials is my understanding. And I know we're, that's all very generalized, but, uh, you know, the idea of inclusion and, you know, leadership being not about taking credit, but about, you know, rewarding the people actually doing work and transparency, uh, you know, all, all of these ideas. And also, you know, why are you working every day? What are you getting from it? Are right. you solving interesting problems? Uh, are you getting to that five-year goal so that you can move on? You know, I don't want I don't want a situation where somebody lies to me and says, well, no, I, I just want to do this forever. Like that's the worst answer. Right. You know, I, I want somebody to be trying to reach an objective. Uh, you know, like what, what salary do you need to live and where, where do you want to be in five years on that salary? You know? Right. So it's, it's really just about collaborating with everyone. And, and, you know, 
in what ways then are you able to achieve that? Like, I'm guessing most of the people, I don't know for sure, are working in a distributed environment even before COVID. Um, I don't know if everyone was in an office space altogether with Senji or if they were working from all over. But if they're, if everyone's working from all over now as, as it tends to go, you know, in what ways are you able to create a workplace community given that you're an, a company that's focusing on the building of online communities? I'm, I'm thinking about that one. Uh, I mean, basically, I don't know. I'm, I'm not, you know, it's easy to say meetings, you know, you can have meetings and, and right. doing things, but just as fluidly, I want people to not have meetings. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, everybody on the I team. I wish I had a boss like that. <laughs> no meetings. Yeah. Yay. It, well, it's, it, it's a, it is a thing. It was like, you know, a lot of people, if all they have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? So yeah. while we know our meetings and if we need to build more community, let's have more meetings. Right. Yeah. And part of collaboration is is definitely meetings. But the other part of it is just the character of people, you know, so I want them to largely be able to do things on their own and to think critically about these things. And that's also part of removing myself from parts of the company is not making those decisions for them. But, you know, I do pretty much audit at some level, everything that's going on. And uh, so I'm connected to everybody on the team, you know, and whatever they're working on in some way, which again is something I need to eventually kind of back off from, but, um, yeah, just basically just being available. So it's, it's, I guess it's the order of what's important to you, which in my mind is always giving people what they need to do their job is always the first thing, just universally. And then, you know, uh, making sure that you have enough sales being drummed up and that sort of thing. Um, and then just, you know, basically just doing a good job. And right. yeah, so it's, I don't know, I, I guess I'm having a hard time fully understanding I guess the question beyond well, that. I think, well, I think part of, you know, it's always a tricky thing with autonomy, right? And a lot of managers, owners, supervisors, you know, the word manager itself conveys that we have to manage. And, you know, the more one manages, the we could say the less one trusts, right? So if I feel like I have to micromanage or manage a lot, I'm not saying you do this, but if I have to manage a lot, that means that I don't feel like the people I have can do make the decisions for themselves on their own. Oh, yeah. And 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 workers, right? If I wanted to extend it even further, they might not know what's wanted or needed if there's a lack of vision, mission, purpose, direction that's mm-hmm. shared. And so purposeless companies, right? Companies that lack purpose can run into, my hypothesis would be, run into greater difficulty giving autonomy because there's not that shared sense of direction. And yeah, of, yeah. Of, of where we're going, the more people have a shared sense of direction and buy into that mission and vision and purpose, the more likely they are to work together, even when working apart. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, you know, letting the character of each person sort of shine through. You know, I don't want to give the impression that when I say I, I audit their work, that I no, no, change no, no. it necessarily. It's more like. Um, you know, let's take a look. What about let's let's run a simulation? You know, is this a secure practice, or is this algorithm going to run fast enough under this uh, amount of load and concurrency, and and that sort of thing? Or how are we distributing this? You know, should this be a microservice? Should it be put into the main product? 
uh, very technical things mostly because my background is so technical. Right. And but I always every single time I you know somebody one of one of my staff or somebody else comes to me, I'm always going to tell them how I would do it and then say that's how I would do it. You can do it whatever way you like. And, uh, you know, it, it also in a situation that where it's more aesthetic or, or usability based, it's going to be kind of up to a vote, right? you know, so I'm not trying to dominate what, what everybody is allowed to do or anything like that. So it, I definitely want them to have that freedom and I don't want them to think like I think, you know. Well, it's funny. I remember watching a Motown documentary talk about having a vote and one of the pieces I'm from Detroit and one of the pieces from, of the Motown documentary was a lot of people would get together in a room and vote on whether or not a song was good enough to be released or would be a hit. And they actually had recordings. I mean, the whole, the whole, the whole mythology is Barry Gordy was the, the brains behind it along with Smokey Robinson. And they basically drove it. But then you get a deeper view that no, there was, you know, he was a driving force with a vision, but then there was also this very open, you know, debate where people could disagree with each other. And that was, really resulting in that magic of, of people's commitment to the idea was that they were invested in it through the solicitation of their feedback and the feeling that they could express themselves and get a fair hearing. Oh, yeah. And actually, that's probably more applicable to uh, my customers in my company in the sense that, uh, you know, if you are having an issue with, let's say, renewals on membership or you know, uh, event registrations, you can ask your members, you know, why is that? What do you need? Right. You know, and that's kind of a big, a big point of that is to get, you know, people do want to be involved. Yeah, they do. Don't, I mean, they, they really do. And they, it's, it's interesting that they do want to be involved. They might not always know what that means or how to get involved. And I know in my experience with associations, the major failing of the association can be we haven't done an adequate job to show that pathway to involvement for the membership. Like we haven't clear, we haven't provided a clear direction on how they can do that. Yeah. And that's actually a big uh, point of fear with, with associations that I've seen is, you know, well, what if they, what if our members say this or think this, or, you know, there, there is a concern and obviously you have, uh, you know, policies and that sort of thing in place, but uh, you know, there is still opening up doors and, and asking your members, uh, especially because probably every association has a few bad apples. Yep, that's for sure. So, I can name some. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I know exactly who you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, and 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 often, especially like at a board level, those bad apples or that bad apple can dominate. And so it's you know it's one of the impressive things for me about the company, I, you know, I have not seen the product per se, but in our kind of, in our dialogues together is you're really dealing with a highly nuanced social and psychological space here. I mean, this is not the easiest, the easiest challenge you've, you've, you've selected for your efforts. It's, it's not something that's ever going to be book. It's not designed to sort of scale. It's not, it's not the thing every single person on earth is going to use and it's not intended to be, you know, it's intended to really cater to this audience and, uh, you know, meet those specific problems, you know, on, on the bad apple note, we even have in, you know, you can actually mark a, an individual person for moderation only. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> that sounds amazing. 
And that'd be great if that was AI too, where the thing pops up and said, Hey Gary, you know, you got to watch this one right here. Have you thought about watching this guy? We just did some speech analytics or natural language processing on his posts. And I don't know, he's saying some things. Yeah. And we, we actually did a comparison with the lexicon services of IBM, Amazon, and uh, what was the last one? Uh, Google. Yeah. Yeah. And trying to derive from posts, what is this actually about? And <laughs> some, of, some of them even offer emotions, like this is a negative idea. This is a positive idea. This is a, a pronoun. This is a noun. This is, you know, and they were, I mean, even in the best of situations, they must have been at least 30% off on everything. Sure. So we just went to, you know, recurrences for relevance, like word cloud, you know, as far as what is this really about? Well, how many times is this phrase mentioned? You know, and that was about as accurate as even the most cutting edge AI. But I tell my students in, in case of emergency word cloud, you know, it's like <laughs> when all else visualization fails, just go to a word cloud, um, yep. see what happens. But, you know, it's, yeah, I can imagine, I think, you know, the AI, if someone posts something such as, I really think that we, you're like, uh-oh, that, 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 that's a problem. Or I don't know why we can't, you know, I mean, I study conversation and, you know, it's, those phrasings in repeat, you know, in repeated uh, context or in, you know, repeated in certain contexts can yeah. be contentious. So it's, it's, it's an interesting thing to help associations who this might not be their bread and butter, right? They might be an association for some area, but now they're dealing with human behavior and how to organize people in a community environment so that they, they don't lose members, but if there's a perception of it being toxic. Mm. Yeah. And everybody, I don't think we have a single customer where you are allowed to post completely anonymously. So it is sort of attached to your identity in a persistent way, um, right. short of like GDPR implementations and erasing data. You know, sure. we, do, we have to support that obviously. Uh, but it doesn't actually happen that often. And yeah. even when it does happen, other folks tend to step in. I mean, if you say something really negative and controversial, other folks just kind of naturally, what, what is that uh, expression? If you want to get the right answer, say the wrong one. Something oh, really? Like I don't know that one. Yeah, it's, a, it's this idea where on the internet, if you post the wrong answer, that's the way you get the right answer. It's because everybody will jump in to correct you. Oh, it's, and there's also gender elements of that, I understand. <laughs> you know, it's like mansplaining, right? And that, that maybe that's a new algorithm you can run as a mansplaining index. Yeah, gender is uh, is really interesting. It doesn't really, you know, I haven't studied it in, in a broader sense, but um, just like from personally researching it, because I have a um, transgender sister, and that sort of piqued my interest in, in just gender roles and the polarization of gender and, you know, secondary and primary sex characteristics. And, uh, you know, it, it does, like, for example, uh, in, in one, uh, gosh, what was it called? Gender Rebels podcast, they were talking about, uh, you know, there was a question of, you know, have you been mansplained to or, right. or, or guys speaking up over you? And it's, and also I'll mention in associations, there is a huge female demographic, you know, in, in the nonprofit space in general, there tends to be. And uh, so I deal with, with uh, a lot of women in business and I, I don't know, I, I always kind of question like, is this generalization or stereotype really true? You know? And yeah, back, back to that podcast though, uh, the, the trans woman said, well, no, nobody has done that. And 
and, and well, good. <laughs> yeah, you know, I I just got you know it's it, it's tricky, right? So one of the things that people often kind of get concerned about is we want to create a virtual community and an online space where people can engage with one another, and then people go, yeah, that sounds horrifying because they, they their experiences with Twitter or Facebook. I just got done reading a book that is called Technically Wrong. Um, sexist apps, biased algorithms, and other threats of toxic. Oh tech. gosh, yeah, okay. And you know, it's it's not a takedown of social media, but it is a a warning sign that if you don't consider the voices of those who might be negatively affected into design, you're going to have a design that negatively affects those voices. Yeah, and, and you know this this issue of how do we then create spaces. You know, a lot of organizations might struggle with diversity and inclusion and equity anyway, but then you layer on, we're going to create a virtual community and, you know, having the virtual engagement for those audiences being, mm-hmm. you know, mixed or perilous in terms of, you know, being, um, you know, flamed or being, you know, doxxed or being whatever. Yeah. You know, that, that, you know, again, once again, Things get ruined when you add people to them generally. <laughs> there, well, it's interesting you bring up sort of usability design on that, and I know that's your specialty. But you know, there there are a lot of concepts around that. For example, you're probably familiar with doing like, um, let's say, five stars, and it's five to one rather than one to five. Right. You know, the, the presentation of it, or let's say you remove the thumbs down, so nobody right. can thumb down; they can only thumb up. Right. right. Um, I know systems like Reddit have karma. I don't right. fully understand. I know that basically if your karma sucks, you might not be able to post, you know, that sort of thing. So right. you have to sort of prove yourself in some way. Um, I, I'm not sure there's a, a really clear answer on fully orienting folks to be positive, but there's a lot of little tricks. Yeah. And I think one of the key things that, you know, as we're talking about it, and as this book was talking about it, and as I talk about with my students, and as you're showing an awareness of is, you know, it's it's easier it's going to probably be easier to think about those things before you design it to try to fix it afterwards. Right. It's like going in trying to be like, okay, what lessons can we learn so that we can create safe, inclusive environments for all members rather than doing something and then going, Oh dear, didn't mean to do that. How do we go back and fix it? Not that you're always going to, not that anybody is always going to get it right the first time per se, Mm -hmm. but, but having that awareness and sensitivity, having that, you know, at least um, knowing it's a thing to worry about. Yeah, I, I think that's true. Although it does sort of remind me of the echo chamber concept as well, because um, there was yeah. a, yeah, I was listening to another, po- I listen to a lot of podcasts, but um, one of them mentioned basically being sort of brutally honest during meetings as a policy, because mm-hmm. if everybody is just overly positive, a lot of, you know, a lot of things are reinforced that may you know, may not actually work very well, or the purpose of a meeting, some critique is not really effective anymore. So it's, it sort of goes both ways, it, you know, and in particularly with productivity, maybe that's more of an angle of productivity, like generating uh, intellectual property versus just having conversations. But it does make me, I'm always sort of divided. I guess I like to just stand back and watch and try to learn from uh, you know, watch the river and and learn from it like Buddha, rather than right. being a turbulent force in it. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned. I just got done listening to a, a great lecture series on the meaning of life, and that was one of the themes that was discussed. 
was this issue of you know flowing in between spaces versus being a force within it that's causing the ripples. And I, I so I appreciate that. And I think you know looking at your website, looking at the blog post which I talked to you about before, there is a lot of again very useful material to consider about the social dynamics involved in creating community. And that's really what we're talking about here, right? Is designing for community. It's creating environments in which community can happen um, and flourish. And, mm-hmm. and what are the ways that we can do that? It's, and it's by no means easy in a face-to-face environment. Um, and, and how can we then take that and you do it in a virtual environment around an association is a pretty unique challenge. And it seems like uh, Senji is, is doing well towards understanding that buttressed by the value system that the whole thing is based on to begin with. Yeah. And that really comes back to, you know, what is, what is our incentive? If our incentive is merely financial or exiting or, or that sort of thing, then, you know, we're going to orient towards that. Uh, whereas my incentive is basically just to make a company run this way sustainable uh, you know, indefinitely and to really serve our customers and to just do a good job. So that's, um, I, I think the culture behind a company is probably a lot more important than what a company is doing outwardly. Right. And how's, and you know, in this, in this era of everything online, how has that impacted Senji? Hmm. Um, are, you, are you talking specifically about the pandemic or just more broadly? Well, I'm thinking more in general about like, you know, a lot of people now like Mike, the, I, I would be, I would be in um, Atlanta right now if it wasn't for COVID, but I'm oh, at yeah. a virtual conference. Right. Yeah. And as far as the pandemic, you know, basically there, people are either in a holding pattern as far as uh, moving forward with a community, you know, in terms of like signing up and that sort of thing, or they are being proactive and saying, well, what if this happens again? Uh, that sort of thing. And again, you just had, uh, I think we're up to something like five generations in the workforce simultaneously right now. Oh, wow. Yeah. And when you think about that and how people are going to use systems, you know, that's one of the reasons we support, um, you know, push notifications, uh, the web application itself, and then email is to just let people engage in whatever way that they're comfortable with without losing some of the bells and whistles between those things, you know, like handling concepts like attachments really well or, or inline images or, um, you know, spam filtering and, you know, just trying to just make things work as simply as possible to right. work with all these generations. And again, the pandemic has, has really expedited everybody's computer literacy in general. True. So I, I think that the audience has become more sophisticated, more of the complex tools are getting traction Right. And then it's also sort of dividing, you know, who is proactive, who is reactive. Um, it, it's it sort of shows the culture of different organizations, you know, yes. during during this time. It's it's sort of like you, you know, you don't know if you're um, fight or flight until you're in that situation, no matter how much you contemplate it. And uh, it's the same thing at an organization level right now. Yeah, it's, well, it definitely has shifted a lot of the organizations I belong to. And now even rethinking, do we need an in-person conference? Do we go fully online? How do we provide, you know, a, a 365-day co- year conference? Not like a conference every day, but how do we do a rolling conference yeah. throughout the year? Why does mm-hmm. it have to be at a certain point in time, you know, at once a year versus throughout? 
you know, what's the saturation point of webinars, how to create more compelling content than, you know, the hour long kind of thing that, you know, people can log on to and watch. Creating those integrated experiences is always a tricky, tricky proposition, especially connecting folks, as you said, beyond just the event itself and, you know, further, further downstream yeah. so that, that that community is sustained beyond the moment. And with, with this audience, it can be, this is their education requirement. They need this many credits and they're going to just sign up for that. But the idea of a rolling virtual uh, conference for lack of a better term, is pretty intriguing. You know, obviously there are ideas like bundles where you can kind of pick and choose as things evolve. I guess the real issue with planning out a year conference is planning out a year conference, right? <laughs> so, like, well, I'm, I'm actually about to do it because I'm about to oh, become wow. the conference planner for this association um, for the next year's conference. And, you know, we went full online this year and it's been pretty good. Actually, our membership went up because people who could not travel joined because they could participate, oh, yeah. right? right. I mean, so the, you know, then the question is going to become strategically, how do we, if we go, are able to go in person next year in, in, in next October, a year from now, how do we not lose the advantages of the online with not, with not losing the advantages of the in-person? How do we blend that together? Yeah, and that is one of the, the issues. Virtual capacity is largely predictable, you know? Um, whereas the physical capacity has real limitations. How, how many right. people can you fit within fire code? How many right. bottles of water do you need? How many meals? What are they eating? You know, how many, how many, how many vats of hand sanitizer? And this actually, I know that we are, uh, you know, over an hour at this point, but it, there is one thing that I find very intriguing and we might've touched on it last time. I can't remember, but it's this idea of, uh, virtual presence in it's like Fortnite, for example this idea of actual bands playing in a virtual world with millions of people all, you know, in that quote space at the same right. time. It's, it's basically, we are emerging on a threshold of things that cannot be physically replicated, right? Like we're talking about social phenomenon at a scale that cannot physically exist and it can only happen virtually. So it's, uh, I find that idea very intriguing where, you aren't worrying about those limitations so much and everybody's, you know, just at home or whatever space they're comfortable in attending these things at a scale that is just not possible. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, we're in uncharted territory for in a lot of ways. And I think a lot of people are going to need technological solutions, but not only the solutions themselves, but also guidance on how to do it. And, you know, look, going back to your blog information and also your new videos that are on the, um, that are being, you know, produced from Senji on success stories and customers, you know, helping people not only have the tools, but the knowledge of how to use the tools to create those communities for their associations. Yeah. And that is a, a focus is on, on the leadership and what is working for associations. And, and again, um, taking this very diverse audience and kind of getting them to all talk to each other, which I, I guess goes back to your question on, you know, as a company, how are we building community ourselves? And yeah, that does come down to, you know, are basically just having a diverse set of customer needs and, and different types of leadership in different spaces. Makes a lot of sense. So what's what's the next frontier for for um, Senji in terms of future directions and movement? Well, we are wrapping up some uh, some virtual exhibitor type stuff and, and uh, dabbling in 
more of that uh, virtual presence and, and immersion into virtual space. But right. again, dealing with those five generations of people, sure. you know, it's sort of uh, like playing around with um, 3D in a browser, like like uh, using the accelerometer in a phone to navigate a, a virtual space, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Or, and because everybody has a phone and all those phones have accelerometers, uh, or some kind of gyroscopic instrument. Right. And so it's, you know, but, you know, like, let's say you have 3D space. Well, maybe we want to remove the vertical axes on that, right? So they don't get really lost, you know, <laughs> sort of like first person shooter experience, right. dramatically simplified. So there's definitely some of that going around. Um, I'm trying to think more broadly if anything else is on the horizon that's interesting. Well, I think it's probably all going to be interesting because we might be locked into this moment for a while now and people are going to have to start to innovate um, their outreach and 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 what value they bring to their membership because that's what ultimately it's about. Yeah, that actually. So the other piece of it is, again, distributed events. And I understand time zones might be a little bit of a wrench in that idea. But again, if you can have it on the East Coast and West Coast at the same time or maybe a few days apart, you know, uh, while still sort of intermingling those regions. I think that's very interesting. And um, just my own wacky ideas, I'd really like to play around more with um, virtual presence in the sense of broadcasting yourself at an event in person, you know, right. so like a virtual presence robot, right? <laughs> so that's I, awesome. I, I'm personally very interested in that. And I, I dabble with inventing and uh, electrical engineering and that sort of thing as well. So, you know, it's, I, I think we could eventually get to a point where sort of merging more of that in-person and sort of hardware and software would be really interesting to explore. And uh, some of that production space as far as manufacturing and um, it's a whole other conversation. It's sort of my, uh, my, my dream of like a next major thing outside of just what Sandy does, but I, I, everything is connected. You know, there's always some way to see everything in a connected, uh, you know, connections between things and, I don't know if you're familiar with that that uh, science show connections. No, I'm not. Chance. It's it's this really cool show where they basically talk about how all of these inventions are connected from like the plow all the way through the computer, I'll and check eventually, it out. yeah, even and it's an older it's yeah. an older series. I think it was from the 70s, 1978. Then, yeah, yeah, and uh, so I grew up watching that, and it it gets kind of dark at the end actually because. Oh. Uh, you get to a point where he, he, I think his name is James Burke. He gets to this point where he says, well, this is, this is the point in time where the amount of knowledge that fits into the modern world in these creations is beyond what a single person can encapsulate. You know, like you cannot learn enough in a lifetime to build, you know, to, to yourself on a desert island, take it from a grain of sand to a computer, Right. Like you can kind of abstractly know those things, but the engineering and the millions or billions or trillions of of hours of investigation and research and development is just we are living at a time where we are leveraging so many things in our daily lives that if that system broke down, it would just be catastrophic. Right. You know, sort of like an EMP scenario, but more on like a cultural technological level. And so I don't know. I, I find all of it very novel and I like to dabble in, in those ideas. Uh, so everything that 
I have an interest in, you know, I, w- I want all of these, these concepts to be explored, no matter what sort of the nature of the company is. There's always some way to kind of play around with things and disrupt those spaces. That's one of the benefits of having a company that's yours, right? You can... You can play in those. Yeah, that's, that's right. You can, yeah. <laughs> you can just you just throw money at whatever right. you want and just cross your fingers. <laughs> oh, 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 well, this is life right now. We're all just kind of crossing our fingers and hoping for the best. Yeah, yep, that's true. Well, thanks a lot, Nick. I really appreciate you taking the time. Okay. We want to thank Nicholas Spot of Senji for talking about online communities making memberships that matter, and being, in his words, an unconsultant. You can find out more about Senji at Senji.com. That's S-E-N-G-I-I.com. And we'll, uh, we'll have all of Nick's contact information, including his home phone number and his social security number in our show notes. Take a tour of Senji to see how they can help your organization grow. That's right. And as always, you can communicate with us over at feedback at experiencexdesign.com. And we love hearing from folks, getting your feedback and, you know, what you want to hear more about and what topics really excite you. And so, um, you know, drop us a line. Say hi. Ready, you know, say hi. Even just say hey. hi. It's all, it's all good too, right? Hello. Um, and, you know, let us know who you want to hear more from, what kind of topics or things you want to hear. We are really excited right now about having uh, magicians on our show. So if you happen to be a magician, you're listening, we would like to talk about, about magical experience design. Maybe a magician can appear and then disappear. I think, I think we're onto something now. Um, and of course, if you want to subscribe to the uh, EXD community, you can join us over on our website as well as on our LinkedIn page to keep up with all the latest updates. And, you know, you want to be there when that magician appears. So in the meantime, keep your eyes out and we will see everybody next week. Take care, everybody. Bye.